Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Casey Smith. Thank you. Good to be here. Casey, I'm flying solo today. Normally, Wendy Zanoni would be joining me. So apologies that it's it's just going to be me firing questions at you and dad jokes and silly asides that probably go nowhere. But uh, is that okay? Yeah, sounds fun. Looking forward to it. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So uh, Casey for those that don't know you, uh, who are you? What do you do here? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Casey Smith. I'm a researcher for Things Canary. I'm on the labs team. So I spend a lot of my time researching. We, we do deception honeypots. And so I spend a lot of time each week talking to customers, finding out what they're concerned about. And we try and formulate a plan to help them catch intruders. And I've been doing security for probably 15, 15 years or so. Um, I have a background in testing. I did a fair amount of testing with like DeviceGuard and AppLocker. That was my first time to attend Blue Hat back in 2016, then some other EDR testing and such. But uh, yeah, I'm a defender at heart, even though I do some offensive research. I love finding ways to be creative for defense. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Thank you. And so you presented a session at Blue Hat in uh, October, Blue Hat October 23, which was the 21st Blue Hat. But it wasn't your first Blue Hat. Your, Your first one was back in 2016. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yep. And then this was your third Blue Hat? Yeah, actually, I think it was my fourth because I fourth. Hit, there was my third in third in Redmond and then I did Blue Hat mm-hmm. IL in 2017. So total of four <laughs> Blue Hats. Awesome. How did you find Blue Hat? Like, you know, uh, sorry, in the sense that back in 2016, you, you submitted and you presented there. How did Blue Hat cross your radar? Had you already been working with Microsoft? Had you been in that space already? I had submitted some tickets probably back then. Jessica Payne was a contact that I knew there and had recommended, hey, submit a talk. And so I, you know, threw my hat into the ring. And uh, yeah, so it was, I presented at a couple conferences, but uh, found Blue Hat to be super fun just because we had access to chat with folks at Microsoft that worked on the very products you were testing and give feedback and give clarity or or my understanding as a researcher. So it was always good to see behind the scenes. So that was that was how I sort of learned about Blue Hat and super glad I did. So you presented, uh, as we said, we presented at, at Blue Hat in October. We actually put you on the third day, which is Strike Presents Blue Hat, which is our internal only day. And that's the day where the only folks that are in the audience are those that work for Microsoft. It's open to anyone at Microsoft, but you have to be a Microsoft employee. And it's a really interesting day, especially when we are setting the conference up and we are seeing the submissions come in because we need to sort of pick, right? We need to work out what is going to be content that we feel is going to be even more applicable and interesting and thought-provoking to an internal-only audience. And your session was one of the ones that we thought, like, this is great content and it will be made available to the entire Blue Hat community. So you're you're not locked behind the firewall <laughs> of the Microsoft CorpNet forever. But yeah, we thought your session would be a really fascinating one, just really thought-provoking for the audience. Before we sort of get into any sort of feedback that you receive, can you give us an overview of your talk title was Building a Canary Token to Monitor Windows Process Execution. What was this talk about? What was your session? Sure. So my session was really about an easy way to use built-in features and windows 
to get a quick alert if somebody runs a command that they shouldn't run or a suspicious command. It was really rooted in ransomware reports and trying to help small teams that don't have the ability to say instrument endpoints with a lot of sensors or telemetry. So, so time and time again, we would see in ransomware reports the same commands being run over and over again. So you see a sequence of commands. Who am I? System info, AD find, NL test. So our team was kind of like, is there anything we could do here without installing a sensor or kernel driver? Or is there anything we could do? So we actually... After some back and forth, and I talked a little bit about that in my presentation, that you know there was a lot of fails, but ultimately we found a really cool debugging feature that allowed us to put in the name of a process that we were interested in, say who am I or K list or NL test, and get a quick DNS callback to alert someone when that command goes off. And so we published that onto our canarytokens.org site, which is a site that we open for free. It's open source for the public, so the small teams can get quick alerts. So that was you know, the origin of the talk. And I think it was fun to share internally with Microsoft folks, hopefully to inspire people to see there's a lot, it's your operating system, it's your tools. So you can instrument it, you can find creative ways to intercept attacker activities. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, the basis of the talk. So, and remind me, so your relationship with the Canary Tokens project, it's an open source project, is that right? Correct, yeah. So Thanks Canary, we create those and run that as a free open source project. And so canarytokens.org is just a place where we create things like fake Word documents, fake PDF files, fake cloud keys. And this particular token was called the sensitive command token. will let you monitor for a quick execution of a process. So if somebody runs... K list in a build system, you'd get a quick alert that that was happening without having to put a lot of a lot of other software down. So it's a bit of a hack, right? It only works in certain situations, but we were pretty happy with how it turned out. So and how long has this project been around for? So CanaryTokens.org has been around since 2015. It's taken on different shapes, but the Thinks team has built that and added over time a number of different tokens that are free to use for Defender. So a big one was, for example, Log4J or Log4Shell. A lot of Defenders needed a quick way to test things, so the team rapidly created a token that people could use to get an alert if there was a Log4J or Log4Shell alert. So yeah, those are the kind of things we, we love to do. And so presenting on this project, presenting on this concept to an internal audience of Microsoft folks, many of whom are developers, there's red teamers, there's blue teamers, there's researchers. So what was the response? What was the response you got from folks in the audience that talked about the feasibility of implementing this Canary Token system in the work that they do? Sure. So one of the things that was nice is after the talk, we had a place where we could kind of meet folks and answer questions. It had a number of folks chat and ask a little more questions about how it worked. And we we use a, like a DNS encoding. So we take the username that ran the process, the computer name, pack that into a DNS alert and send it out. And so a lot of the questions are really just about sort of the mechanics of how it works. And, you know, some folks would ask about deployment and scale. And we're certainly not here to replace any kind of EDR or telemetry system that's complex with rules and such. But I think it was fun for folks to see repurposing both a debugger technique as well as a technique we've seen attackers use where they they have used this technique to add persistence and run their programs but reusing it for as a defender was really fun and so most of the conversations were a lot just about the mechanics how it worked and i could show them on the laptop and do some quick demos and i think most people got it pretty quickly yeah you used the analogy of i think the development of the stealth fighter is that right I use that throughout the slides because that was a really neat progression from a concept or an idea to something that you ultimately deliver. So I love that. There's a great book on Skunk Works by Ben Rich. And so I kind of used imagery from that to show it's a long way to go from, I have an idea, is it helpful? 
to actually putting something in the wild that customers use and people test on. And so we really aim to try and find things that are easy to use and simple. But that was the, I just like that project. It's a good model for thinking about a research to a prototype to a, a final shipped product. And for this project in particular, like how different was the initial kernel of an idea through to the actual service that you shipped in Canary Tokens? So there's a lot of failure. So I think one of the things that's interesting when you present research, nobody sees the pile of <laughs> things that didn't work. And so I tried to showcase that in the talk where I was saying, like, we tried WMI, we tried a bunch of different other techniques. And I think you have to be okay with that in research. Something may fail, it may not land the way you want. But the progression and the learning is important along the way. So we had maybe half a dozen attempts before we got something that we really liked. And sometimes in other research projects, it's, it's quite a bit more. But I tried to peel that back just a bit and say, don't get discouraged because failure is a part of research. It's integrated into the success of anything. You always have to make mistakes, learn and grow along the way. Got it. And what degree of community engagement, you know, it is an open source project. What are you all looking for from the community in terms of contributions or forking or adding features or just utilization? Oh, we just love seeing, well, we hear almost every day defenders who privately tell us or anecdotally that, hey, this caught something. So somebody might have created a token six months ago, put it out on a network, they get an alert and it's the thing that they caught something. So somebody ran that command that they were hoping for. So that's the big smiles for us, just seeing it actually give people that sort of smoke alarm. Something's wrong, something's going off that you aren't expecting. And so we love to have folks contribute new ideas for new tokens. Being open source, that's a great thing. So people are always exploring, well, what if we could do something like this in Azure or something like this in GitHub? Or So yeah, we're kind of open to ideas, but we just love seeing people run it and use it. So yeah, it's been fun. For those listening to the podcast that aren't super familiar with the concept of a token in this sense, you you have touched on a little bit, but like, what's the sort of quintessential example of how this would work from sort of end to end? Sure. So the premise of a token is something on your network that if an attacker takes it or interacts with it, you're going to get an alert. So we have the basic example would be a simple Microsoft Word document. So you create a Word document and you put instrument with some beacons. And so if somebody opens it on your network, you get a call back. And so often that's an offensive technique, but we think as defenders, we can use that as well to get an alert. Hey, somebody opened a document from a place they shouldn't have opened it. And that gives you the, so the idea is really artifacts that you can create on your network. The sensitive command token was one example of that, but there's a number of different kinds of tokens that folks create and use and put them all over the place. So the idea is then attackers are a little more trepidatious and step pretty slowly because they're not sure if what they found is real or if it's some sort of trap that the defender has set. That's sort of how I think about it and our our team thinks about tokens, uh, if that helps. Yeah, and from the attacker perspective, we hear all the time in sort of postmortems of what's happened with the breach, an attacker gets in and they're just, they're going everywhere. They're trying things, they're pulling levers, they're pressing buttons, they're just seeing what does what. And so the thinking here is that in that sort of arbitrary random, let's see what we've found, what we've stumbled upon, they're going to randomly open things and download things. And so you place these tokens in, you know, throughout and they're going to give you that early warning system. You mentioned a word doc. What other things can have tokens? Can everything have a token? Well, not necessarily. Sometimes we talk about the shape of a token and what it looks like. So we have documents, artifacts, so think PDF files, Excel spreadsheets. And another popular ones are things that are like cloud credentials, so Azure, AWS API keys. These are real keys that alert in our account or our tenancy that someone's found that key and tried to use it. And so it's a great way to decouple. If you wouldn't 
An attacker often looks for keys for cloud automation or cloud access. So we'll put these in configuration files. And then you know sort of right away someone found it. And then secondly, they used it. And you get some insight into what they tried. Maybe they tried to list storage devices or see what their access was. So there's those documents. There's cloud, there's QR codes, we have VPN configurations, we have EXEs, so you could upload an executable, we'll sign that executable, and inside of that signature is a callback to a token, letting you know that somebody ran that executable or tried to inspect. So where that's helpful, you might have, so I used to work at a bank and we would put things down that would be like a, you know, ATM maintenance. <laughs> so, you know, nobody in the internal organization would run that program, but an attacker stumbling around might find that and think they found some program that unlocks or opens up ATM access. And so then as a defender, you get that alert. Someone's poking around, someone just ran that executable that has a token embedded in it. So those are a few, hopefully that helps give you an idea of some of the shape. There's documents, there's cloud, there's VPN, QR codes. A, a number of things can be tokenized to get a sense that, like you said, attackers get in, they're going to bump around a lot. <laughs> they're gonna open documents, they're gonna try things, and we're hoping to increase the likelihood that what they find gives us a tip off. And so obviously this is a, public, ready-to-go, open-source project, it's there. You don't need to go build your own. However, for folks that are in more of a restrictive environment or in a project where they couldn't implement this service, are there sort of principles that you can sort of share for how someone might be able to create their own pseudo sort of canary token system in what they're doing without having to implement it, this sort of third-party system? Sure. So one thing we actually see is a lot of folks will, if they're in a restricted environment, they will fork the project and run it as a container inside of, say, an IoT or a restricted space. So then, then it's sort of contained. So within that network, you could still use the same features. There's a few alerting things and email and things that you would have to configure to run it on a Docker container, say, inside of a restricted space. But if not, all of the tokens being open source show you how it would work. And so what we talk in terms of primitives, so Two really good primitives for tokening things are DNS lookups and HTTP callbacks or TLS callbacks. And so if you can make a thing, trip a DNS lookup or make a callback, you can put those in a number of places. You can put it in a link in an email. You can casually put it in a conversation in a, a Teams channel. <laughs> and so those things can be left there, or you can you know, even use things like a simple document called passwords and put uh, access control lists around it so no one should open passwords.txt. But attackers find it then. The reason they open those is because 99 out of 100 times they open passwords.txt and it's a real thing that someone <laughs> left there, right? And so, so we're trying to just, Again, as much as we think it doesn't happen, those things happen. So those primitives, I think, for folks that are maybe in restricted environments or don't want to use the public site, there's certainly tons of approaches that they could use. But uh, trying to think of ways to get a, just enough of alert that somebody's trying to access something or in a place or has access to something they shouldn't. Absolutely. And then so sort of keeping thinking about attackers that are a bit more experienced, they're aware of tokens, they're on the lookout for them. How is this project evolving to respond to sort of more sophisticated adversaries that might be able to identify a token or create some sort of system in which they're able to go and poke or prod somewhere and not trip the token? What are you all working on to sort of mitigate that? It's a good point. So trying to keep 
an eye on new tokens is really interesting. So code repositories, so things like GitHub, places where, say, maybe the PDF token isn't have as much value today because it has to be open, say, in a PDF reader like Acrobat. Uh, so its use utility diminishes. But over time, we're always trying to look on the horizon and see what's new, what might be something that would be enticing to an attacker. And this was an example of that. This was, you know, this token's really only a year old. So I think we're trying to help folks find Keep a finger on the pulse of how attackers are changing. You know, we're certainly aware of attackers that could circumvent or step around tokens, but we're even seeing red team projects, open source projects, put up red flags or operational warnings. Hold on, this could be a token. So that's, in a way, that's good because we're causing attackers to maybe move slower or think twice about what they find and what they use. So I think the challenge is always attacks change. So, you know, like we've seen a number of attacks that were related to like web session cookies. And so we don't have a token for that, but it's something our team's looking at. Like, how could we do that? What could we do with HAR files, the HTML archive files or HTTP archive files? So trying to keep an eye on what's emerging and what could we instrument to get that alert. Got it. So hopefully by the time this episode is live and folks are listening to it, the video recording from your session will be available to view and we'll make sure the links are in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're like, what are they talking about? I want to I see this talk. <laughs> uh, head to show notes and we'll hopefully have a link to the video. Otherwise, uh, you can always head to the MSRC YouTube channel and look for Blue Hat October 23. So Casey, you actually submitted a second talk to this Blue Hat. And it's always interesting when a researcher or an institution submits multiple talks and they're all great. And and, you know, we have to decide on one. If you can, can you tell us a little bit about the other one you submitted that sort of didn't get through and, and just sort of, you know, you obviously have many irons in many fires. You have many, many pies in the oven. I'm at a loss for analogies. So yeah, tell us about the second paper if you can. And then how's all this fit into the scope and breadth of the work that you do? Sure. So the second talk that I submitted was really a look at LOL bins or living off the land binaries. Hang on. Is LOL bins living off the land bins, not LOL laugh out loud bins? Correct. Yes. Oh so, my gosh. Yes. I thought <laughs> LOL bins was was like a troll meme term for dumping binaries, but it's living off the land. Living off the land. So I think there's some Twitter thread out there a long time ago, people were trying to figure out what it was and somebody just said LOL bins or LOL boss. And then they created, I think Oddvar and some team uh, folks created a project around it and they've done a great job. But that's really, I love, that was my first research. So, so LOL bins, like what can you do on a machine without bringing malware? What can you do on a machine just using commands that are there? And the reason I was interested in that because the environment I worked in used very restrictive application control. So you couldn't just drop Mimi cats and just run into as an example, you had to have approvals for both signature or path or other attributes. So the talk I submitted was looking ahead and looking back, sort of what do we know about LOL bins that we didn't know today? Like there's a ton of things that have built-in features. So my focus in research was really on things that ship from Microsoft because that you could assume that that would be there in a standard Windows build. But we've seen other emerging research there's other products that are often on systems that are also fair game and have crazy weird behavior or weird machines that may not be expected. So that was the second talk. And so how that ties to things like this sensitive command token and LOL bins. Again, I, I have this 
maybe hyper focus on minimalism. So I, if you give me Notepad and C Sharp compiler, I should be able to, to do whatever I need to do, <laughs> right? And so, so uh, that that idea, you know, emerged into this sensitive command token. Give me reg edit, and what can I do to alert process execution? And so, so I think, but as a researcher, I think it's important to have constraints and bound your research a little bit. So if you're unbounded, it gets a little bit. You're not sure where to go. But if you focus on something and you say. Maybe you say something like, how would I attack a network and never, ever touch a Windows machine at all? And then you start, it opens your mind to research and thinking about, well, what, what's in the, what's on the, you know, what are other systems or other, how could I use? And so those constraints force us into ways that help us maybe surface attacker constraints as well. So attackers have requirements or limitations. And so that's, if that, if that makes sense, my, so my interest is really in like living off the land, using what you have. And so that applies as a defender as well. So, you know, as a defender, you often have to do investigations. And unfortunately, that machine didn't have the logs or it doesn't have the, the sensor. And so looking at it as a defender, practicing, how do I defend by living off the land? What can I do with the Windows operating system today, for example? So there's a whole bunch of things that the teams have worked on there, like attack surface reduction, controlled folder access, all the device security. So a lot of that doesn't either get turned on or people maybe aren't aware of the telemetry. So I love having defenders dive into that stuff and turning on switches, looking at new logs, looking at new artifacts. And so uh, that's really the blend of those, if that makes sense. It was great. And I want to come back to something you just said. So you said that you like the idea for research as imposing constraints. And I was sort of surprised to hear that. So I'd love you to talk a little bit more about it because I would have thought that, you know, as a researcher, you're red teaming, right? You're pretending to be an adversary and think like an adversary and operate like an adversary. What constraints does an adversary have? Because a lot of the times the adversary is, I would assume, they're coming to a target or they're coming to an opportunity or they're coming to a whatever it is they're focusing on with a full toolkit with everything that they need and obviously, you know, access to the internet so they can either download Mimikatz or whatever they need or they can, you know, compile something. So like, I love the idea of creating constraint and that being a forcing function, but how is that reminiscent of what an attacker does or what an adversary does? So a good example of that would be, it's really easy to operate in say a network with open internet access, but a constraint you might impose as a researcher is what if there's a proxy server? And what if that proxy server restricts newly minted domains? And so you may not run into that as a red teamer, but thinking ahead of time and looking at the sort of the apex defenders is a good way to apply those as constraints to your research. So you might say, you know, the users in this network are not local admin or they only use Surface books. And so like those are much more hardened devices than say just a maybe wide open access. So so when I think of constraints, I think of trying to think of defender constraints, I guess is a way to say it. So application control was the first constraint that I really ran into that changed the way I had to operate. So in the past, you just downloaded an EXE and ran it. With AppLocker, for example, suddenly there's a pre-approval process. And so something that's new, unknown, untrusted doesn't run. And so that constraint is sort of forced upon you. And you don't want to, as an attacker, you don't want the, that surprise, right? You don't want to find that. So that's where I think as a researcher, it's important to impose limits and say, you know, maybe you're on an ARM system now. You're not x86, you're not x64, you're on a new a Windows ARM version. So how does that affect what you're working on or, or or does it affect what you're working on? So maybe those are some ideas, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. So if your goal as a researcher is, is really about sort of looking for more sophisticated 
vulnerabilities, logic flaws, your challenges that could be exploited. Think about constraints that would really force you to go and look in specific areas and maybe look a little differently were you just on a standard you know box with admin access and full internet capability is that did i get that right no i think that's a good way to phrase it. yeah so I, like i think new features are a great way to constrain your research too so maybe you focus on tls communications but only tls 1.3 or only quick or so you know what i mean so you only look at a particular piece of that and then that forces you to think about I can't rely on the old tools. I have to think about what's new or is there tooling or is there instrumentation here that maybe doesn't exist and that drives innovation, I think. And is there a thought process that you would sort of recommend here for how a researcher might go about that process of identifying potential limitations to impose in order to create their focus? Sure. I think the big, one of the big ones is tools and instrumentation. So there's a great quote I love. Our ability to know is a function of our tools for knowing. Our ability to know is a function of our tools for knowing. Right. So the idea there is if you think of a telescope or a microscope, those have tremendous knowledge and insight. So as a researcher, what I think a great area to look at is where do we not have tools? Where do we not have visibility? And you see a lot of the great researchers, I think, build their own tools to solve the problems. James Forshaw, a good example. I was so about to say James Forshaw. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> and I think he actually did a talk on the podcast a while back about developing tooling. And so that... He absolutely did. Shout out to James. Yeah. Yep. It's a great way to drive research is where do we not have tools? Where can I not see something? And that forces you to either build your own tooling or try and find tools that are built into the operating system that might accomplish that. So that can be a forcing function is where do we not have visibility? Because those are the places attackers like to move to. They like to move to places we don't have telemetry or insight or places people aren't paying attention to. And, and at the risk of paraphrasing James incorrectly, I do think one of the things that he said in that episode, I believe it's episode two, of the podcast, if you if you want to go back and listen to it, it's a fantastic conversation. I always enjoy talking to James. He actually talked about creating tooling as a way to learn new things, right? Like he comes to a new area or a new domain he doesn't really know or isn't familiar with. And, you know, one of the things that he'll do is potentially go and, you know, start building tooling as a way to learn, which I just thought was fascinating because to me, that's a sort of a, I would have thought of it the other way around. Like you have to develop some degree of expertise so that you then can go and build tooling that is based on your expertise in that domain. And he just flipped it on its head. And I was like, what? That's amazing. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, and it's a great example. And I think you use those tools. And when they're your tools, they give you the ability to then make a hypothesis and test it with your tooling. It's fun to see. So yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I'd love to know what else you're working on and what other sort of projects that you can talk about, you know, either just areas of interest, sort of personally, where you're focusing your time on research or, or anything that's in the hopper that you're able to talk about. What else is on your plate? Right now, I spend probably 40% of my week just talking to customers. So I sit in on calls with our team that's working with people trying to deploy things. They're facing a challenge or trying to detect something. So my research is really right now, and ideas are driven from what we're hearing from customers for either friction that they're facing internally or products they're trying to work on. So really, we're trying to aim for those things that work and that people will use. Because I think there's a lot of great ideas and a lot of great tools, but they're maybe on the shelf for folks or they're not using them to their full potential. So that's my interest right now of sort of how can you extract maximum value out of configuration? And right now, Windows has a ton of amazing features. And so trying to help folks see 
you know, what's native to the operating system as we move from Windows 10 to Windows 11? What are the new things that you get? What are like, so that's an area that I'm trying to look at, at least on our team and trying to also keep an eye out for new services or new protocols that we might try and mimic or emulate to help to catch attackers in cloud is an area that I'm trying to learn. So trying to get up to speed in Azure or Intra-ID or AWS or GCP. So they all, they're all different and trying to focus on ways to learn how attackers work in those spaces, similar principles maybe, or primitives, but it's a new space for a lot of us. So I think trying to go there as well. So, yeah. How do you navigate the challenge of working with a customer who is experiencing something that gives you an idea for a piece of research that you can go and explore? And I mean, I'd love to hear your personal philosophy, but then also in terms of guidance to others listening to the podcast that are either in engineering, software development, are in research. How ethically do you balance the professional relationship you have with clients and maybe even with your own work if research isn't your day job and using what you're seeing and what you're learning as a springboard in such a way that it doesn't sort of violate, you know, the relationship with your customer or the access and permission that you have for data and and IP? Sure. No, that's a good question. I I would say most of the things that come out of ideas from conversations with folks is how to make things easier, how to make things easier to deploy. So so there's really nothing there in terms of something that would be unique to that particular customer or environment. But I think you'll hear day in and day out, you know, defenders have a lot of irons in the fire. (laughs) They have a lot that they're working on. There's a lot of concern, obviously, around ransomware and some of those things. So you're trying to listen to the general concepts or reading threat reports and trying to gauge what's out there. And that drives sort of a close to the ground research as opposed to maybe there's blue sky research where you're thinking of new things and new ideas, but our focus is really trying to help solve problems now for folks, if that makes sense. So I think that the analogy I use is sort of like medical research, right? You have people that are trying to solve a problem that helps heal someone or helps them fix this process or fix something. So that that's a good domain, I think, as a model for, you know, the aim of the research is always helping and positive, you know, in terms of that. So we're not there. That's a little aspirational to say that we're like doing close to medical research. But if that gives you an idea, that model of trying to say, all right, this team or this group or a number of common people we've talked to have had this particular issue, how can we help solve it? I'm going to ask you two questions back to back because I, I, you know, one is pessimistic, one is optimistic. The first part of the question is, what are you concerned about right now in the industry or in your domain that either you're going to focus on or that you think the industry should be focused on? But then the flip side of that is like, where are you seeing great stuff happen? And where do you have optimism for either the near or long-term future? Sure. So pessimism, there was a great talk, actually Jason's talk at Blue Hat day two, he talked about how Jason Haddix and his talk, he talked about having a defense that was overly optimized for endpoint, right? And so it heavily instrumented on endpoint detection and processes, and then seeing attackers come in and use a completely new technique using initial access brokers and web session tokens. And so, so I'm a little pessimistic that sometimes we think we have it solved. We think we've got the right tools and telemetry and attackers simply abandon that landscape or abandon that approach and take a whole new approach. So I, I'm a little pessimistic. So, so that talk resonated with me. It's a great talk. I think it'll again be published on the site, but it was worth listening to because I think he really speaks to what it's like to be in an incident and feel that frustration of, we had a lot of other tools that maybe didn't catch all this stuff. So that's 
That's sort of my pessimism. So I think we're overly optimized on endpoint and overly optimized on Windows endpoint. And so now you start thinking about constraints like, well, what about Chromebooks or MacBooks or other, you know, other platforms? So where I'm optimistic is the innovation of Defenders. I think we've seen a progression over the years. Defenders have been publishing some amazing research. So one of my favorite ones is the team that published JA3, for example, which is a TLS fingerprinting tool that came out maybe three or four years ago. And I can share the link, but it's a great way for Defenders to say, how can we identify unique command and control infrastructure on TLS Handshake? So I, I think we're seeing some really neat defensive innovations that have come. So I'm, I'm super excited. And even the innovations in, within the browser, within Edge, within the operating system, the driver research, you know, helping folks understand malicious drivers. Those are things that are super helpful. So I, I tend to see emerging techniques, defenders finding ways to get that telemetry, to get those indicators. So that's, if that helps, that's sort of my pessimism and optimism. No, that's great. And I think people, you know, community societal sort of perspective, you know, one of the things that we try and do with Blue Hat, which is sort of a little challenging because Blue Hat is almost always in Redmond on the Microsoft campus. And so, you know, unless you live driving distance or, you know, bus fare distance, you know, you've got to travel in. But we do try and, and open up the access to the Blue Hat conference to anyone and everyone in the industry, high school students, college students, folks that are just interested in moving into the security space, maybe from another industry, et cetera, et cetera, all the way through to the Yodas, to quote John Lambert. How are you seeing that sort of expansion, diversification, broadening of the people coming into the industry? And where do you think that we could sort of do more? Or, you know, is there a particular type of lived experience or professional experience that you think is needed that we should go after? Sure. No, it's a great question. I, it's one of the things I love about conferences and missed, I think, when everything closed down in 2020 was the people. It's always the best part of a conference is, is talking to people, getting ideas. So I encourage folks to attend where they can, ask speakers questions, talk to people. Many times the talks are recorded, but the conversations in the hallways and in the, the over lunch and things, those are super valuable because people, and again, the thing with Blue Hat was great. The first two days are a wide mix of folks. <laughs> so you have a lot of industries, but you find common ground. So you find people in education and people in retail and people in aviation or medical there we're all facing similar problems but each of us in different domains so i encourage folks you know find those domains attend the conferences one thing i think we might consider doing better that's worked for me that i've enjoyed is sort of an apprenticeship model i think this stuff can be really hard to learn if you're new so finding folks that are new and working with them helping them answer questions having them try things like if you think of other domains where you have electricians or plumbers, you learn skills by working with people directly, right? So you're not necessarily reading books or taking classes. You're in the field, you're solving problems hands-on. And I think we could probably do some of that a little bit. I know there's some of that, but it's something, that, an area that I'm super interested in is just helping folks try and find ways to work alongside and let somebody try something, let them within reason make mistakes or ask them what they think they would do instead of just showing them what to do and let them take ownership of how the systems work and, and make recommendations. So we're always open to new ideas. I think sometimes we we all get stuck in our ways. So having fresh eyes come with you is a great way to learn something and ask yourself, yeah, I don't know why we do it that way. <laughs> so that pairing of, I think John Lambert mentioned in his keynote, sort of the folks that have been here for a while with the folks that are brand new. And I think that's super important. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think of the, what do they call them, the technical trades? So, you know, plumbing and electricians and how 
those industries are a lot older than cybersecurity, and yet they still have that apprenticeship model where you bring in you know, people that are either young and new in career or people that are changing and, and don't have the skills, and you're an apprentice. You are connected to a journeyman, for want of a non-gendered term, a master, I guess. Uh, no, that's, that's even worse. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> a, a more skilled and more experienced right. uh, person in that field. Sure. And then they bring yeah. you along and they, they talk about their experiences and how they've helped you avoid failures and pitfalls. And we don't have that. That would be a great thing to, you know, we always have internships, but yeah, I, I love that idea of sort of apprenticeship and maybe, you know, trying to implement that in this space. That's really cool. We are coming up on time, Casey, and you've been so generous, obviously presenting at Blue Hat and obviously being here on the Blue Hat podcast. Always ask, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything coming up? You know, maybe you're talking at another conference you'd like to let folks know about. Obviously, we've talked about the Canary Tokens project and we'll, we'll put those URLs in the show notes. And or can folks reach out to you anywhere? I know you're no longer on the Bluebird site. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn, so folks can find me there if folks want to reach out. But yeah, essentially, I don't have anything to plug. I just, I just, I hope that folks that are out there will listen to some of the talks that were published at Blue Hat. John Lambert and Jason, they, both those keynotes were great and gave you a good sense of the community. So hopefully folks will use this as a pointer to go listen to some of the talks. There was a number of uh, talks that I said in there that were great. So I, yeah, I don't have anything personally to plug. I'm Next few months are holiday time and time off, so I'm not doing anything till probably next spring. But uh, looking forward to the next Blue Hat. It was fun to be back on the campus, back in that building. So thanks for having me on, and yeah, super excited to get to participate. Absolutely, Casey Smith. Thank you so much for being part of Blue Hat and being part of Blue Hat Podcast. We will talk to you again another day. Great. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.